In C.S. Lewis's book, The Silver Chair, I'm just give you a little synopsis before I actually read some of it. So at the very beginning, uh, Jill and Eustace are eager to get into Narnia, and you know Eustace has been talking about it, and so they somehow get into this place, but they actually aren't in Narnia, <coughs> Excuse me. although they don't know that. They end up on this precipice of this highest cliff that they could ever imagine. <coughs> I got a little something in my throat. So at their highest cliff, and then Jill, who's just kind of showing off, is kind of playing at the very e- edge, and she's about to stumble and fall, and Eustace kind of saves her, but he falls off and rushes this huge uh, lion, not just a normal size lion, but this giant lion who comes by, blows, and Eustace flies off, and then the lion just disappears back into the forest, and Jill is left alone into this strange place and this incredible forest, and all she knows is there's a giant lion. And as she becomes in this place, she realizes that she is parched and thirsty and needing refreshment. And this is where we'll pick up. We're at the very beginning. The wood was so still that it was not difficult to decide where the sound was coming from. It grew clearer every moment, and sooner than she expected, she came to an open glade and saw the stream bright as glass, running across the turf a stone's throw away from her. But although the sight of the water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rest forward and drink. She stood as still as if she had been turned into a stone, her mouth wide open, and she had a very good reason. Just on this side of the stream lay the lion. It lay its head raised with his two forepaws out in front of it, like the lines of Trafalgar Square. She knew it at once that it had seen her, for its eyes looked straight into hers for a moment and then turned away, as if it knew her quite well and didn't think much of her. If I run away, it'll be after a moment, he'll be after me in a moment, thought Jill, and if I go on, I shall be run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved if she tried, and she couldn't take her eyes off of it. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours, and the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion if she could only be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. If you're thirsty, you may drink. They were the first words she heard since Scrub had spoken to her on the edge of the cliff. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, If you're thirsty, come and drink. And of course, she remembered what Scrub had said about animals talking in that other world and realized that it was the lion speaking. Anyway, she had seen its lips move this time, and the voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger, a sort of heavy, golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in rather a different way. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill? 
The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this ever was boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made herself itself up. It was the worst thing she had ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up the water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. Before she tasted it, she had been intending to make a dash away from the lion the moment she had finished. Now she realized this would be, the, be on the whole the most dangerous thing of all. She got up and stood there with her lips still wet from drinking. Come here, said the lion, and she had to. She was almost between its front paws now, looking straight into its face, but she couldn't stand that for long. She dropped her eyes. Human child, said the lion, where is the boy? He fell over the cliff, said Jill, and added, sir. She didn't know what else to call him, and it sounded cheek to call him nothing. How did, he, how did he come to do that, human child? He was trying to stop me from falling, sir. Why were you so near the edge, human child? I was showing off, sir. That is a very good answer, human child. Do so no more. And now, here, for the first time, the lion's face became a little less stern. The boy is safe. I have blown him to Narnia. But your task will be harder much of what you because of what you have done. Please, what task, sir, said Jill. The task for which I called you and him here out of your own world. Now, I, I hope you know, if you haven't or you don't know, if you haven't read these books, read them. Um, you know, Aslan is a metaphor for God in these books. It's not a perfect metaphor, but it's a metaphor. Now, just like it is dangerous to drink from this stream in which Aslan presides over, so it is dangerous to come and drink from the water that Jesus offers us in this world. It's dangerous to believe in Jesus in this parched world. And yet, all of our desires and the thirsts, the things that we, we seek after, they do not satisfy us, do they? Anything in this world, they doesn't satisfy us. We lived in a parched world. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity even states it this way. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hungry. Well, there is such thing as a food. 
A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such thing as a water. If I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. This is our desires. Our desires all point to a place that is going to satisfy us, to a person that is going to satisfy us, and are never satisfied in this world. We're satisfied temporarily, but they point to something greater. Just as it seems dangerous to believe in Jesus in this world, it is more dangerous not to believe in Jesus. Just as Jill found out about drinking the water in front of Absalom. It is lethal to refuse to drink from the river of the living God. In this passage, Jesus invites the crowd in the temple. In the temple, he says this, where they come to worship God. He invites them and says in John 7, 37, did you hear it? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The first thing I want to do today is look at the dangers of accepting or not accepting this invitation. And the second thing is we're going to go look more closely at the actual dangerous invitation that Jesus gives in the temple to you and I. The dangers of accepting Jesus in this world. Let's look at this passage. It is dangerous following Jesus because it doesn't align with cultural norms and beliefs. Following Jesus doesn't align with how the way the world thinks. John 7, 40-42. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? There's lots of opinions, and we've been getting this through John, lots of opinions of who Jesus is. And there was lots of confusion as to who he was. He's, he's saying certain things, and it's confusing. It's confusing to their understanding and their beliefs. Some say he is the prophet, right? This is the prophet that's predicted in Deuteronomy that's greater than Moses. Some saying that he's the Messiah, the Christ. And here's the reality. He's actually both. He's the fulfillment of the great prophet and the Messiah, but that's actually not what he's claiming here at the temple. He's claiming something much more than that. The reality is that Jesus fulfills all those roles and people do not understand because it's outside of their construct and their beliefs and their norms. Today, when we follow when Jesus challenges our intellect, if it doesn't challenge your intellect, then I don't think you're really thinking about Jesus and what he's saying. In a culture where we separate the physical world and the spiritual world, we might believe that there's a spiritual world, but we don't believe they actually interact. Now, that's just a nonsensical, non-biblical way of thinking, that they are always intertwined. And so, we have a hard time connecting what Jesus is saying. Following Jesus is just a, another piece of, could be just another piece of who we are. 
and what we do. It's not integrated into everything that we do. It may be the dominant thing to do, but it's not the all and everything. It's not the defining factor. We come on Sunday. We open up our Bible. It's, it's things that we do, but it's not the all in all. The truth is, following Jesus is upheaval in our lives. It's upheaval in our culture and our priorities. Following Jesus is a reorienting all our life around him for all things and in all things. It is dangerous to follow Jesus. It is dangerous to follow Jesus because it's against our cultural norms and our beliefs. It's dangerous to follow Jesus because his truth claims are divisive. In John 7, 43-44, it says, So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. There was this confusion about who he was. And we already know there was an arrest warrant now for him. And it divided the people. Even the officers who were sent to arrest him were like, I'm not sure we should arrest him. I know you're telling me to arrest him, but it doesn't seem like we should. Some actually want to follow him. Here's the reality as you know it today. In this world, if you follow Jesus, some people will mock you and ridicule you. You might lose relationships because you follow Jesus. You might lose friendships and you might lose family. Now that is not so prominent in our culture, but around the world, that is definitely prominent. And around the world, in some cultures, if you decide to accept Jesus, you are ostracized from your family. You are ostracized from your community. You might even lose your life. At times, when, when we talk about our faith, maybe people will roll their eyes. Maybe people will unfollow us. Or maybe people just ignore us completely. Here's the thing. People may reject us, following Jesus because they reject him but you and I we never reject people we never reject people for not following Jesus that's the way of the world that's not the way of Jesus would Jesus reject you for not following him that's the exact opposite of what he does none of us follow him none of us choose him and yet he comes after us we do not reject people for not following Jesus. We love them regardless. The truth is, the topic and person of Jesus is divisive. It will always be divisive in this world, but we are not called to be divisive. It is dangerous following Jesus because it goes against our cultural norms. It, it's dangerous following Jesus because it's divisive, and it's dangerous following Jesus because Jesus challenges and changes the power dynamic. In John 7, 45 to 49, the officers then came to chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring, to, not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered, have you also been deceived? Have any of the, have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. The Pharisees and the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin as they were called, are challenged by Jesus. They're challenged because some people are waiting like, maybe he's the Christ, maybe he's the prophet, 
Maybe he is the one that's supposed to lead us. He's challenging their hold and their power and their influence over the people. 1 Corinthians 1.27 says this, But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. We know how Jesus comes into this world, right? He comes into a major poor, from a poor family, as a carpenter, as a tradesman. He has no political capital. He's not even formally trained. And here he is in the temple, the foolish of the world, making the wise look foolish, challenging the power dynamics. He is a threat to the powerful. This is how God works. This is how God works because what we think is foolish is actually not. The world is upside down in God's view. We, we think we have it all under understanding, but actually God says, no, no, why, why is this? Why, why is this? It's because when we are powerful and have strength, we are arrogant and we are prideful. We think it is our ability our wisdom, our might. Today, people with power and wealth usually will do anything to hold on to that power. Isn't that true? I'm not talking about someone else, by the way. I'm talking about you and I. You and I will do anything to hold on to power and wealth and influence. We hold tightly. We lord it over people. This is our way. We're going to speak in Mandalorian talk. This is the way. We hold power. We, we, see, we, we can recognize it in other people. We can recognize it in our political system, right? This is why our country is, doesn't work because people hold on to power. It, well, they, they're just a reflection of you and I. You and I wouldn't be different in that moment. We would hold on to that same power. But this is not the way Jesus works. This is not how God works. God comes into the world and lets go of power. Comes as a humble child. Comes and, and lives a life in, oh, that models repentance. That lives a life of humility. That lives a life of generosity and abundance. This is who he, he gives away. It's quite different. Jesus' life is quite different than the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. Here's the truth. The greatest power that you and I wield in this world is love with humility. Now that actually is kind of uh, repetitive. Love has to be humble or it's not love. But I want you to think of love with humility. I want you to think, as you love, you need to be humble. This is what Jesus says. He comes humbling the world to show what actual love is and not lowered in overpower and strength. It's dangerous to follow Jesus because he challenges the power dynamics and the way we think the world works. It's dangerous because to follow Jesus because you actually might have to lay down your life and your rights. John 7, 50-52 Nicodemus, who was the, one of the power brokers, he was one of the Sanhedrin, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, said to the Sanhedrin, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? 
Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Nicodemus is an inside power broker. And he risks to challenge the rest of the Sanhedrin and says, hey, your power play is not right here. Let's think about this. And what did they turn to, to Nicodemus? They turned to threats and accusations. How dare you question this? You don't know the scripture. Are you from Galilee too? Are you a poor peasant as well? Today, in some places in the world, you could lose your life, you can lose your privileges, you can lose your rights because you follow Jesus. Here's what I'll say. That's not you. I know Christians in America complain about losing their rights. You are not being persecuted. Maybe one day. Maybe one day. But there are Christians in this world that are being persecuted and that have to lose their life and do lose their rights. It's dangerous following Jesus. But the reality is Scripture teaches us this principle. It, this is a principle which, which I would define as restorative justice. And Scripture would define it this way. Restorative justice, and we've talked about this in the Good Samaritan, is being in right relationship with people and being in right relationship with God and then going in and paying the penalty and paying the price for them. And restoring the things that they basically need. Basic needs, that's what restore. If When someone has a basic need, that, that we come and that's distributive justice. Restorative is right relationship. There's distributive needs, right? People have basic needs, not just needs that they want, but basic needs. Those are all, that's distributive justice. There's also libertarian justice. These are all biblical principles. Libertarian justice would be about your rights and freedom. Very important. All three of these are very important. But scripture actually has a priority order in these. And it doesn't start with your freedom. Because here's the truth. When someone has a basic need, our rights are not equal to that. We will give up our rights and privileges and our freedom to meet that basic need. If you don't understand how that actually works, this is what God does. He models this. Jesus is the author and the king of the universe. And he lays down all his rights to come into this world because you and I have a basic need. We're not in right relationship. Now, does that mean your freedom and rights aren't important? No, they are important. But the truth of scripture is that we need, our people's basic needs supersede our rights all the time. All the time. Whatever it is. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Now, now sometimes there are some, there's things that people think they need, but they actually don't need. <laughs> That's a different conversation, right? All three of these are important justice principles, but there is a priority order them. We need to store in right relationship. We need to meet basic needs. We need to talk about then our individual freedoms and actually meritocracy. I even talk about meritocracy or meritocratic uh, justice as well. That's the last one. Here's the thing. Those are four dangerous reasons why. It's not all the reasons of why following Jesus is dangerous in this world. But there's four, some of them, that are illustrated in this passage. But then I want you actually to turn to see the dangerous invitation that Jesus offers in this world. In John 7, 37, 38, he says that on the last day of the feast, very important context, the great day Jesus stood up 
and cried out in the temple, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You're like, okay, that's really big. But here, I want to even show you the context even more and makes this even more profound because it's, it's beyond our imagination. It's beyond this text because of what actually is happening right here. This is the last day of the feast. I already told you at the beginning of the service, right? They had uh, this great golden uh, pitcher that they would fill it from the pool of Shalom and they would bring it into the temple with great fanfare and parade and that the last day, the priest would blow the shofar, and he'd be marching around the table seven times, and then the, the choir would sing Psalm 113, 114, 115, 116, and then 118, which we, we read, read today. I hope some of those passages, and that rings some bells for you. All right, the great uh, triumphal entry of Jesus in just a moment that's going to happen in his story. And this, this celebration of, this, of the, the Fust of Beast was a celebration of God's provision in the wilderness and his yearly harvest provision, right? This is the harvest celebration. The, the big idea of this feast is to understand that God is the provider. This is the idea. And, and these daily rituals. And then what I told you, they, they bring in this water, and daily they would offer, after they did celebration, they would offer and sing these songs. They would pour out in this bowl a water offering on the altar and a wine offering on the altar, which is like, this, this is a little bit weird. Why water on the altar, right? But... But here's the point. Those acts of obedience, those acts of offering, was to show that they depended upon God for the water that was miraculously provided in the wilderness. Remember when Moses struck the rock? right? And, the, and their water just flowed out, gushing in this parched land. So that's the celebration. Yes, God is the provider of this miraculous water. And it's also a, that God provided the water or the rain for the harvest. And, and the last one was the remembrance that God will pour out his Holy Spirit upon us, which is a promise in the Old Testament. It's a promise they all held on to, that this promise that God is the provider of this miraculous living water and this water that gives us life right now. But all that points to this, to this living spirit that he promised to give us. In Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27, it says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. And Joel 2, 28-29, which is quoted in Acts. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit, like, like water. On all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in these days, I will pour out my spirit. On this last day, at the water offering, after this great fanfare, after the, after the reading of all those psalms in Psalm 118, and did you, did you hear uh, um, Psalm 118, 25? At the very end of it, it says, save us, O God. You know what that word is? It's Hosanna. This is Hosanna. This is what that, that word means. It's a cry out, save us, God. And they would say it seven times. Save us, God. Save us, God. Hosanna. 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 Blessed is he who comes in the highest. 
And in this context, this is the context in which Jesus stands up in the temple as they're making this offering. It doesn't actually say he does it right then, but I can envision that as soon as they make this offering, as soon as they say these things, he stands up and says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I mean, do you hear the craziness in that? You think they're all, what they're thinking about, that God provides the water, that God provides the rain, that God provides the Holy Spirit. And here Jesus spouts up, it's me. Come to me. Are you thirsty? Are you parched right now? I will give you that thirst. I will take away that thirst from you. Jesus is alluding to Isaiah 55, 1, when Isaiah 55, 1 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no mercy, come by eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without price. This free and overflowing grace. Israel tells us that God is the one that offers and invites, that God is a provider, which this whole celebration is about, that God is the thirst quencher. And in this context, we're, we're, we're celebrating that God is the provider of miraculous water in the wilderness, that God is the provider of the present-day rain, and that God is the provider of the future spirit that he promised us. Isaiah says, God is that provider. And Jesus takes Isaiah's quote and says, yes, God is the provider, and I am God. I am the provider. In this temple worship, he makes it clear. He's not just the prophet. He's just not the Christ. That he is the provider of what they're thanking God for. He is God. Jesus says, I was the one that provided this miraculous spring in the wilderness. I am the one that provided you rain for your harvest. And I am the one right now offering the Holy Spirit to you. This is in the temple. Jesus stands up and says, I am the God you worship. Come to me and drink. And you will be satisfied. Believe in me, and out of your heart, which is the center of your being, your intellect, your thoughts, your emotions, your will, will flow the ultimate promise of God. The Holy Spirit will reside and overflow in you. And Jesus makes it very clear in, in verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This, I hope you hear that. The come to me and drink is the same as the next clause would believe in me. Trust in me. Trust that I am the water provider. Trust that I am the spirit giver. Trust that I am God. This offering in the temple, in this, in this service, in this context, is much like the offering the line gives to Jill. Jill is parched. She's given an absurd choice to drink from the only most refreshing river that she's ever seen and heard, but to do it in front of this gigantic, ferocious lion. 
It's absurd. But there's no other choice. And she has to bend down and she has to drink, which puts herself at risk, right? When you bend down, taking your eyes off the predator, or so she thinks. And she perceives this as a terrifying danger. From the perspective of Jill, it is incredibly risky. From the perspective of all those people in the temple, hearing Jesus' offering, that would have been incredibly risky for them to say, hey, I'll have a piece of drink of that. I'll come to you. I'll believe in you. Yeah, you are God. Think about that in the context of that temple, of all the Sanhedrin there, of all the officers that are there. The risks that they would have perceived in that moment to following him, to trusting him. Like the offering Jesus makes today for our hearts can seem equally dangerous. While our lives might not be in physical danger, some are around the world. May we may this intellectual danger, it may seem foolish or uneducated. Maybe there's a risk that we actually have to surrender our rights, our privileges, our position, perhaps our family, to follow Jesus. It's dangerous. It seems risky. It doesn't seem wise. Just like the offer Aslan makes in the silver chair. This invitation is actually gentle and compassionate. What makes it seem dangerous is our sin, our pride, our arrogance. Makes accepting Jesus seem like a dangerous offer. When in reality, the most dangerous thing is not accepting it. Because as you heard in the story, the lion was offering freely, come drink, come drink, come to me and drink. Be satisfied, Jesus says. In this dangerous world, with your dangerous, corrupt heart, in, your, in, this, in this life that seems parched and at times empty and not satisfying, make the sanest and safest decision which is to trust in Jesus. I know it may not seem safe, it may not seem sane, but that he is God and he is the provider. And all the dangerous moments this week that you have, and all of them are fraught with danger because of our sin, turn and drink from Jesus. He is God. He is the provider. And more than that, the scripture makes clear, he is the provision. He is the living God. Come and drink. Let's pray. Gracious Father, loving Lord, guiding Holy Spirit, I thank you for this free offer and this free gift this tender and gracious offer. Lord, I know my pride and arrogance, my lack of humility, makes things seem dangerous which are not dangerous. It's not eternally dangerous. Lord, I know there are things that I have to give up. I know those are things that you're working in each and every one of us. And the longer that we're with you, the easier it is.
because the more satisfying you reveal yourself to be. Lord, we are parched, and we will be parched tomorrow. Turn our hearts to you. Help us to come drink from you. Lord, have your spirit dwell in us and manifest itself more and more in our lives. We give you thanks that you are the God that freely gives, that freely provides. We pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.